When you think of the Middle East, what first comes to mind? Conflict? Terror? Violence? International media has exposed us to a narrative of endless conflict and perennial instability in this region. And as a consequence, many of us assume that persistent bloodshed has forever been a fixture of this part of the world. That bombings and civil war are simply ingrained in the fabric of a troubled landscape consisting of fertile river valleys, endless mountain ranges, and boundless deserts. And that little connects the long-ranging conflicts that extend from Yemen to Syria to Afghanistan. However, that is simply not the reality. For many in the Middle East, the past was a different world entirely. For the better part of eight centuries, the Middle East was seen as a beacon of stability and the cradle of human civilization. Many innovations from this region radically reshaped human achievement, and a significant proportion of the Western world's philosophies, principles, and dogmas were spun from great minds that originated in the Middle East. So what happened? Many point to Ottoman imperialism, meddling from Britain, France, or Russia, or even the defeat of the Arab powers in the 1967 Six-Day War. Others may point to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, or the centuries-old conflict between Shia and Sunni Muslims, insisting that conflict is not only persistent, but permanent. However, no moment has changed the modern Middle East more fundamentally than the year 1979. Within months, three major events sparked a deep rivalry that plagues the world to this day. In Iran, a popular revolt took down the Shah, but a theocratic government seized the vacuum and took his place. In Saudi Arabia, a group of insurgents opposed to the House of Saud seized the Grand Mosque in Mecca, holding the venerated Kaaba hostage. Finally, in Afghanistan, the Soviet Union invaded and occupied the mountainous country. The combination of all three events triggered a new era of great power competition in the region, and its consequences were immense. This episode of Up to Speed will discuss Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the monumental events of 1979, and how the effects of this ongoing conflict reverberate across majority Muslim countries today. Part 1. 1979. The Turning Point. It is 1979. Under an apple tree, surrounded by his followers, sits a mystic immersed in meditation. Before his return to Iran to become its first supreme leader, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini spent years in exile in France. It was here he waited while political and social forces shaped a restive population opposed to the Shah's rule in Iran. Khomeini, Khomeini, they cried, we're waiting for you. The Ayatollah is expected to return to Iran, but when or how is not yet known. Upon Khomeini's return to Tehran in February 1979, he'd launched a revolution of nothing less than global significance. The U.S.-backed Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, who was overthrown in January, only a few weeks before Khomeini's return, had presided over the country with authoritarian violence for nearly 40 years. The Shah used his rule to transform Iran into a Western-style state, a project that he had ruthlessly pushed forward in spite of human rights and the country's unique, deep-seated traditions. Compared to the Shah's Western-oriented materialism, Khomeini initially appeared to stand for a societal model based on the complete opposite, one that was guided by religious principles. Political Islam, specifically the Shiite variant preached by Khomeini, was steeped in populism and immediately appealed to many Iranians, because it appeared to be a credible alternative that respected human dignity. Many Iranians were led to believe his reign would restore social justice, the absence of which had brought suffering to many. But that simply did not happen. Upon reaching power, religious police were established. Religious education was made compulsory in schools, alcohol was banned, Qurans were mass printed, and more mosques were built. Iran's educated class, its intellectuals, artists, progressive thinkers, and empowered women veiled and unveiled, would all become the victims of a systematic purge. Iran's deeply storied culture, just like under the Shah, would continue to be locked away in a box of oppressive totalitarianism. <laughs> The Iranian Revolution set off a chain of events that shifted the primary zone of armed confrontation in the Middle East 
from the Levant to the Persian Gulf. By November 1979, Iranian students had seized the U.S. Embassy, inaugurating the enmity between the Islamic Republic and the U.S. that endures to this day. With this action, Iran was internationally isolated. This presented a unique opportunity for a certain Iraqi figure, Saddam Hussein. Ayatollah Khomeini long believed that Shia Islam revealed the true path for Muslims. Khomeini had called for the overthrow of monarchies and for secular governments to be replaced with Islamic republics. This came much to the alarm of the region's Sunni-run Arab countries, Saudi Arabia, Ba'athist Iraq, Kuwait, and the other Persian Gulf states, most of whom were monarchies and all of whom had sizable Shia populations. So it didn't take long before he called upon the Shiite population of Iraq to overthrow the monopoly on power held by the Arab Sunni minority and secular Iraqi Ba'ath Party. Immediately, Saddam Hussein viewed Khomeini's leadership of an Islamic Republic in Iran as a threat. He had long sought to replace Egypt as the new pan-Arab hegemon to balance Israel in addition to Iran, whose new government threatened the Arab world's status quo. It was a perfect opportunity. 1979 gave Saddam Hussein the onus to invade Iran. His assault sought to trigger a collapse of the Islamic Republic and allow himself to project Iraq as the new pan-Arab hegemon. The wreckage of an Iranian jet fighter shot down over Iraq in the war that shaken the whole Gulf region and the wider world beyond. The fighting, begun by Iraq, threatened to involve other Gulf states and even the Americans and the Russians, who both have deep-rooted interests in the region. Across the Persian Gulf, many Arab conservatives looked upon what was happening in Iran with excitement and hope. The creation of the Islamic Republic of Iran in March 1979 by Shia revolutionaries inspired conservative Sunni Arabs throughout the Arab world. The revolution provided a model of overthrowing a strong government, especially one backed by the United States. Some became political forces, such as the Muslim Brotherhood. Others became more extreme and violent groups. One such group, the followers of Yuhaman al-Utabi, a man who had helped create the Saudi precursors for terror networks that included al-Qaeda. Duhayman believed that the House of Saud had lost its legitimacy through corruption and imitation of the West. In 1921, his father had led an earlier revolt against the House of Saud, and his hatred for the monarchy was deep-seated. Duhayman echoed many of his father's charges against former Saudi king Ibn Saud. Unlike other anti-monarchist dissidents in the kingdom, Juhayman attacked the Saudi religious establishment for failing to protest against policies that betrayed Islam and accused them of accepting the rule of an infidel state, offering loyalty to corrupt rulers in exchange for honors and riches. Like many religious zealots, his goal was to institute a theocracy to prepare for the imminent end of the world. So, in November 1979, while Iranian students began to occupy the U.S. Embassy, armed followers of Juhayman al-Utaibi seized the Grand Mosque in Mecca, while the Imam of the Grand Mosque, Sheikh Mohammed al-Subayil, was preparing to lead prayers for the 50,000 worshippers who had gathered for a prayer, he was interrupted by 500 insurgents who revealed weapons from under their robes, chained the gates shut, and killed two policemen armed with only wooden clubs. The outside world found out about the seizure when an employee of the construction company renovating the mosque reported the invasion before telephone lines were cut. Broadcasts from Iran today blame the United States for the assault on the Grand Mosque in Mecca, the Muslim holy city in Saudi Arabia. The insurgents released most of the hostages and locked the remainder in the sanctuary. They took defensive positions in the upper levels of the mosque and sniper positions in the minarets, from which they commanded the grounds. No one outside the mosque knew how many hostages remained, how many militants were in the mosque, or what sort of preparations they had made. With religious approval granted, Saudi forces launched frontal assaults on three of the main gates. Insurgent snipers continued to pick off soldiers who revealed themselves. The insurgents aired their demands from the mosque's loudspeakers throughout the streets of Mecca, calling for the cutoff of oil exports to the United States and the expulsion of all foreign civilian and military experts from the Arabian Peninsula. In response, with French support, the Saudi National Guard and the Saudi army routed out the insurgents slowly and steadily, with heavy casualties. Tear gas was used to force out the remaining militants. The battle had lasted for more than two weeks and had officially left hundreds dead 
and hundreds more injured. The actions of Juhaman al-Tabi, inspired in part by Ayatollah Khomeini, was an affront to the holiest site in Islam and an open challenge to the royal family's religious credentials to preside over Islam's holiest mosques in Mecca and Medina. Osama bin Laden was a young man in 1979 when he witnessed the royal house of Saud calling in foreigners to defeat Yuhaman and his insurgents' followers. Alarmed by the Saudi military desecrating the holy site with tanks and artillery to flush out the insurgents, bin Laden immediately saw the house of Saud as an illegitimate infidel government in cahoots with the West. This became bin Laden's motivating factor in his revolt against the Saudi royal family. The spread of populist political Islam was a nightmare for the House of Saud. While the Saudi ruling family was devout, they abhorred the social revolutionary agenda that dominated Tehran under Ayatollah Khomeini. Furthermore, Saudi Arabia's image as the leader of the Muslim world was severely undermined in 1979 with the rise of Iran's theocratic government under Ayatollah Khomeini, who openly challenged the legitimacy of the Al Saud dynasty and its authority as the custodian of the two holy mosques. To burnish its credentials and reinforce its reputation, the House of Saud responded by emphasizing the country's dominant religion, Wahhabism, like never before. Following the attack, the Saudi King Khalid implemented a stricter enforcement of Islamic law. Women were barred from being depicted on television, driving, and making legal decisions without the expressed consent of a male guardian. Punishments for actions that run counter to Islamic law were strengthened, leading to more beatings, more floggings, and a dramatic spike in the death penalty. Dissent was strictly prohibited, and those who spoke out were silenced. The effects of Ayatollah Khomeini's rise didn't just project west. It projected east as well. Events in Afghanistan would profoundly impact the region. In 1978, the Soviet Union engineered its own coup against Afghanistan's democratically elected government to secure a reliable socialist protectorate on its southern flank, adjacent to U.S.-backed Pakistan. When this triggered the beginning of open civil conflict in Kabul, the Soviet-backed government needed additional assistance. So, by the end of December 1979, the Soviet Union sent thousands of troops into Afghanistan and immediately assumed complete military and political control of Kabul. This event began a brutal, decade-long attempt by Moscow to subdue a burgeoning Afghan civil war and maintain a friendly government on its border. With both U.S. and Pakistani support, Osama bin Laden himself would set up shop in Peshawar, a Pakistani city near the border with Afghanistan, where he used his connections to set up financial and moral support for the Mukhadin. There are conflicting reports out of Afghanistan, some saying that Soviet forces now are in complete control of all major towns and highways, others saying that heavy fighting continues in key areas of the country, especially within a hundred-mile radius of Kabul. Part 2. The Strategic Crescent So, how did the events of 1979 come to pass? What brought the Middle East collectively to the breakpoint of instability that resulted in the cycle of revolution and war we know today? Diving headfirst into the storied geopolitical history of the Middle East with the expectation of clear answers to today's conflict is foolish. Like an ancient tree, this region has deep, obscure, and winding roots. Further, the oversimplification and homogenization of these roots is a major cause of the broken policies that created the situation today. This is not the whole story, only a tiny fraction of it. Empires rise and fall, filling vacuums where older thrones once stood. After defeating the Byzantines in 1453, Constantinople became the seat of the Ottoman Empire, an empire that would quickly expand and prosper. In only a century, the Ottomans extended their reach from the Atlantic to the Persian Gulf and became inconceivably wealthy in the process. Unluckily for the Ottomans, their trading wealth was a major catalyst for the expansion of European empires in the 17th and 18th centuries. A tipping point arose in the late 1700s when the British began to fixate on the prospects of getting rich from the new crown jewel, India. But there was one problem. The aging Ottoman Empire was right in the way. Still, the 400-year-old kingdom was beginning to splinter, and the British began making power moves across Egypt and the Middle East, 
with France following suit in North Africa. The Crimean War of the 1850s all but bankrupted the Ottomans, plunging their economy into ruins. Russia was set on a rise to power, and shortly exploited the Ottoman weakness to expand around the Black Sea and into the historically Persian Caucasus. Weakened and indebted, the world watched as British, French, and Russian vultures circled over the now ancient Ottoman behemoth. France and Britain became increasingly competitive in Egypt after the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869, which would soon spark Europe's scramble for Africa and cut the Ottomans out of precious trade monopolies. In 1867, the Austro-Hungarian Empire united, leading to wars and revolts liberating Ottoman holdings in Eastern Europe. When oil began to be discovered in the Middle East during the first decade of the 1900s, the last morsels of regional control held by the Ottomans had come under fire. When the First World War started in 1914, it proved to be the final nail in the Ottoman coffin. The subsequent Treaty of Sevres partitioned away most Ottoman holdings outside of the Anatolian Peninsula to Britain and France. However, these weren't like traditional war spoils. The League of Nations, at the behest of U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, pushed Britain and France into temporary claims, or mandates, over these regions to promote democracy. So began the British mandate of modern Palestine and Iraq, as well as the French mandate of modern Syria and Lebanon. Borders were thus drawn, regimes deposed, and cultures relocated, based on politics, convenience, and, most importantly, oil. Oil was discovered in 1908 Iran, leading the British to set up the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. The AIOC itself set up a number of regional subsidiary companies, such as the Iraq Petroleum Company, which made a name for itself as a pre-OPEC cartel, serially monopolizing oil prospecting and drilling away from Middle Eastern governments well into the 1960s. Today, we know this company as BP. After oil was struck in 1928 in Iraq, discoveries in Kuwait, Bahrain, and Saudi Arabia soon followed. The British mandate ended in 1932, but by then, it was too late. Just as Nazi Germany was rising, and the seeds for the Second World War were being planted, a fossil fuel frenzy had beset the world, and the Middle East had found itself caught right in the center of it. And the Wahhabi House of Saud in the Arabian Peninsula and the Pahlavi dynasty in Iran soon established powerful footholds amidst the scramble. At the head of the Persian Gulf is the largest oil refinery in the world. It's hardly surprising that Hitler, as yet unable to make good his enormous wastage of oil, cast greedy eyes on Iranian supplies. But it's now firmly under British protection, a fact which locally they don't seem to resent at all. The Second World War in Europe dragged the Middle East into a new era of turmoil. The nascent government of Iraq was overthrown by a pro-Nazi regime in April 1941, commencing the Anglo-Iraq War. Five months later, after a 16-year regime in Iran, Shah Reza Pahlavi was deposed in favor of his more pro-Western son by a rare coalition of British and Soviet interests. The AIOC took this opportunity to make an unprecedented power grab of Iran's oil fields, taking control of capital, production, and mineral, enraging Persians. Elsewhere, after expanding oil production vastly in the 1930s, Saudi Arabia hosted Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1945 where leaders struck up a deal in which Saudis would supply Americans with cheap oil in exchange for formal American protection. While only one among many such arrangements made during this era, the 1945 U.S.-Saudi deal officially brought America to the table as a major player in Middle Eastern affairs. Three years later, these cordial relations would be tested. In May 1948, a year before the expiration of the Palestinian-British mandate and in the wake of the Holocaust, a Jewish state of Israel was declared by Zionists in Jerusalem. The following day, a coalition of Arab countries led by Egypt, Syria, Iraq, and Transjordan invaded Israel, kicking off the 1948 Arab-Israeli War and ushering in an era of pan-Arab nationalism. Starting with the 1952 Egyptian revolution that installed the Nasser regime, the movement had brought nationalist, staunchly anti-Western Ba'athist governments to power in both Syria and Iraq. Growing sentiments of resistance were not contained to the Arab world. Fire was catching, and it threatened to bring the imperial state of Iran down as well. 
It all started in late March of 1951, when Mohamed Mossadegh, leader of the left-wing National Front Party, was elected to fill the empty PM spot in Iran. His government represented a contentious rift in social policy, pitting the hard-line Shia clergy against more liberal factions who called for a new era of modernization in the country. Days later, Mossadegh caused a stir by holding a vote to nationalize Iran's oil reserves, which would take almost all fossil fuel claims out of AIOC hands. The British panicked, placing a crushing international embargo on Iranian oil and pressuring the shutdown of the world's largest oil field at Abadan. As the summer of 1951 passed and a resolution looked nowhere near, the British MI6 began drawing up plans to take back refinery control by force, but Prime Minister Clement Attlee shut it down. In October, Mohammad Mossadegh made a surprise visit to the United Nations and gave a moving address on behalf of his people to the newly formed United Nations Security Council. In one of the first major disagreements in Security Council history, the UN refused to halt the nationalization of Iran's reserves. Instead, Mossadegh spent arduous days coming to a compromise with the council, but the British refused to budge. As 1951 eased into 1952, the British pressured Iranians with sanctions, then took the dispute to a world court session presided over by a British national. In July 1952, the world court would too side with the Iranians. Ongoing embargoes and sanctions levied against Iran had devastated the country economically, and the coalition keeping Mossadegh in power began to fragment. In August of 1952, Mossadegh began to make a series of dictatorial moves using emergency powers, including jailing dissidents and stripping the Shah of major military as well as political powers. That October, the United Kingdom was evicted from its embassy in Tehran. This time, the British went to the Americans asking for help but President Harry Truman had refused. Things changed, however, with the inauguration of Dwight Eisenhower in early 1953. Convincing Washington that the Mossadegh regime's purported instability was paving the way for, com for a communist takeover in Iran, the British got President Eisenhower to support their plan to install a new government friendlier to oil and Western interests. Operation Ajax in the CIA, or Operation Boot in MI6, were locked and loaded. Chief of the CIA's Middle Eastern Division, Kermit Roosevelt, the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt, arrived in Tehran to organize the coup in July 1953. It all came to a head on August 15, 1953, when the Shah drew up illegal proclamations that would remove Mossadegh from office and see him arrested. But Mossadegh caught wind, and the plan backfired. The Shah fled to Europe, and CIA operatives were sent orders to pull out of Tehran. But Roosevelt stayed for reasons that remain unknown, working mysteriously out of the U.S. Embassy basement. What we do know is that individuals were hired to pose as Communist Party members and take to the streets, hailing Mossadegh as a communist leader, preying on perceptions that he was aligned with the Communist Party. Soon, real members of the Communist Party joined. Roosevelt also paid gangsters to sow chaos on the streets and raise questions regarding Mossadegh's rule of law. In response, Mossadegh dissolved parliament to stage a revolution on August 19th against a backdrop of continued gang violence. This time, Mossadegh declared martial law, which would be his fatal error. Mossadegh and his government were swept from power in favor of General Zahidi, the man appointed by the Shah in the first place. By declaring martial law, Mossadegh had all but handed the co-conspirators his keys to the kingdom. He was quickly arrested. When Shah Reza Pahlavi, who at this point was looking for a job in Rome, was informed of the coup, it is said that he remarked, I knew they loved me. Iran quickly found a new economic footing that would skyrocket its wealth and spread prosperity in the coming decades, but at great cost. Anti-American sentiment had been ingrained into Iranian culture, led especially by the Shiite clergy who would spend the better part of the next 25 years plotting their vengeance. The biggest opposition in Mossadegh's National Front Party, the Etude Party, and the Communist Party had each been squashed. In 1957, the Shah's secret police, Savak, became legendary for its use of violence against the Shah's dissenters. Year by year, the Shah only became more despotic. For a while, it really seemed like the United Kingdom and the United States had made major gains in the Middle East by bringing a Fred to the helm of what would become the region's largest military power. Inadvertently, however, the West had fomented major opposition. Part 3. 
the ascendant Islamic right. Flash forward 25 years to 1979. The previous year had witnessed the Iranian people rise up against their government and install a Shia theocracy in January. In Saudi Arabia, the Kaaba was held hostage in November. In December, the USSR launched its decade-long invasion of Afghanistan. Now, it's time to look at the 80s. What were the immediate impacts of the geopolitical landmines that rocked the Middle East through 1979? And how did these events bring us the Gulf War, the rise of international terrorism, and our modern war on terror? In much of the Middle East, the 1980s were defined by a brutal conflict between two repressive autocracies. It was a decade of famine, debt, and chemical warfare, and it was largely characterized by the Iran-Iraq War. Most formal borders were established in the Middle East during the British and French mandates, and these borders were largely arbitrary, leading to ongoing border clashes over particular provinces across the subcontinent. One of these provinces is known as Shat al-Arab. It lies on the border between Iran and Iraq, rich in oil as well as valuable waterways, and while it is historically Iranian, the region is predominantly Sunni Muslim. In 1937, Iraq was given political control of the province on the condition that Iran would have taxed access to the waterways. But in 1969, emboldened by over 15 years of Western military aid, Iran abrogated the treaty, refusing to pay the tax any longer. The Iraqi government was incensed but lacked the strength to take a stand. This was until March 1974, when Iraq mustered its forces for an invasion of Shat al-Arab. It was a disaster, and Iran easily held back the assault. In the resulting 1975 Treaty of Algiers, Iraq was forced to make territorial concessions that embarrassed its government, heightening antagonism between both Iraq and Iran. Three years later, in a small move designed to ease tensions, Iranian intelligence informed the commander of Iraq's armed forces, Saddam Hussein, of an upcoming Soviet coup against his life. The allegations were validated, and Iraq responded by expelling a contentious Shia religious leader who had been in exile in Baghdad. His name was Ayatollah Khomeini. In only a few months, he would be the supreme leader of Iran. Meanwhile, Saddam Hussein used the plot to execute a massive political purge against his enemies in the Iraqi government. Top on Hussein's checklist was his vindication for the 1974 embarrassment, and he was superbly positioned. He wanted to get his border provinces back, stop the spread of theocracy, and supplant Iran as the hegemon of the Middle East. Iraq had built up its military power at breakneck speed after the conflict, now rivaling Iran. Meanwhile, the Iranian revolution had fractured their forces. By September of 1979, Khomeini had executed 85 of Iran's top generals, purged over 10,000 officers, and the general desertion rate had inflated to almost 60%. Border clashes ensued and continued into 1980. In March, the two countries ended diplomatic talks, and on September 22, 1980, Iraq invaded. For some three months, Iraq's invasion was making good progress, taking Abadan and winning a decisive battle at Qurram Shah. But Hussein had made a key error in his planning. Where he thought the repressed Iranian people would rise up against their government, they instead rallied behind it. Hundreds of thousands of Iranians enlisted before the new year. Most of 1981 was spent in a hellish stalemate of World War I-like trench warfare. In June 1982, Ayatollah Khomeini began Iran's first invasion of Iraq. Determined to remove the Ba'athist party from power, the invasion was the world's largest ground offensive since 1945, with some 180,000 combatants. But it was messy. The Iranian military was well-trained, but undersupplied, while Iraq was well-supplied, but undertrained. Stalemates persisted well into 1985, and as the war became more desperate, so did the means. Allegations of chemical warfare had been made against Iraq as early as 1980, and in 1984 the UN conducted an investigation that conclusively validated the rumors. Iraq used mustard gas and taboon on the battlefield, as well as against both Kurdish and Iranian civilians. After Saddam's second failed invasion in 1985, many began to think Iran may win the war. But both sides were running out of gas. Worldwide embargoes were crushing Iran, while billions in debt were compounding in Iraq. After three more brutal years, the UN mediated a ceasefire in July 1988. 
the Iran-Iraq war bore numerous consequences that continue to shape Middle Eastern geopolitics. Some 1 to 2 million people died in the most brutal conflict the region had ever seen. Iran and Iraq would remain mutually hostile well into the 2000s. Things weren't much better across the Fertile Crescent. In Lebanon, a civil war had been raging since 1975. The state was weak and ruled by a Christian Maronite minority, though the country contained many Sunni and Shia Muslims. In 1976, Syria intervened and occupied the country. In June 1978, after border clashes with Lebanon, Israel invaded as well. Sensing a power vacuum, the new Iranian regime came to Lebanon's aid, establishing a military camp to train its numerous refugees into a militia and supplying them with equipment. As the war raged on, these military camps grew and prospered. The resulting force was bound by Iranian revolutionary ideology, while providing numerous social services, hospitals, and education that the Lebanese state was failing to provide in the midst of the civil war. Today, the militia goes by Hezbollah, and they became the most powerful political force in Lebanon. This ties into a third point, Afghanistan. After the Soviet invasion in 1979, legions of young men in the Arab world rushed to the defense of the Afghans. Osama bin Laden was one of them, using his wealth to create networks of smuggling and subterfuge. Soon, these networks formalized into an organization called The Base, or in Arabic, Al-Qaeda. They weren't the only players, though. Backed by a number of states, including the U.S., one of the biggest resistance movements against the Soviets was called the Mujahideen. This group lent itself well to Wahhabi extremism, especially on account of their heavy Saudi backing. These Mujahideen successfully forced the Soviets out of Afghanistan in 1989. The 1980s saw conflict touch almost every corner of the Middle East. And aside from the United States and Iran, one other power seemed to have been intimately involved. Saudi Arabia. Popular awareness of what the year 1979 had meant for the kingdom was not obvious at first. Yuhaman's siege of the Holy Mosque in Mecca led to a slow and discreet transformation of Saudi society. Over the 1980s, Saudi Arabia's clergy reissued and renewed religious laws. The goal? To focus the attention of the faithful so much on the right execution of faith that they had neither time nor energy for politics, especially revolutionary politics. Death by blasphemy had now been introduced in the Muslim world by a strange twist on both sides of a competition between Iran and Saudi Arabia to position themselves as the standard bearer of global Islam. The model was and remains successful. Strict Wahhabi teachings have found followers throughout the Muslim world, with the vast majority of Sunni fundamentalists taking the path of right-wing Wahhabism. However, what the House of Saud didn't predict in 1979 was that the influence of the ultra-conservative Wahhabi Islam would also pave the way for jihadism, and eventually, Islamic terrorism. On the other side of the Persian Gulf, on June 3, 1989, Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini, 86 years old and ailing, died of heart failure. In his will, he left a parting shot against the Saudis. The 29-page document was read by Ali Khamenei, the president and soon-to-be supreme leader. Muslims should curse the tyrants, including the Saudi royal family, these traitors to God's great shrine. May God's curse and that of his prophets and angels be upon them. King Fahd spends a large part of the people's wealth every year on the anti-Qurani, totally baseless, superstitious faith of Wahhabism. He abuses Islam and the dear Quran. In time, President Ali Khamenei himself became supreme leader, and the Saudi royal family would not soon forget his speech. Ayatollah Khomeini's death would thus allow a detente to begin between Iran and Saudi Arabia. For centuries before 1979, the Sunni-Shia schism in the Middle East lay mostly dormant. Now it was being weaponized. Seemingly from nowhere, Islamist insurgents rose in Saudi Arabia in 1979, Egypt and Bahrain in 1981, Syria in 1982, and Lebanon in 1983. The stage was set, and the race to the bottom had begun. Part 4. Power, Terror, and Endless Conflict 1991. During the 1980s, Saddam Hussein had incurred major debt from Kuwait in order to finance the Iran-Iraq War, leaving his government heavily indebted. 
So, Saddam came up with the idea that if he would invade Kuwait itself, he could effectively erase that debt. So, he invaded. Immediately, Hussein began occupying key energy assets. This invasion of Kuwait by Saddam Hussein, the only man in the Middle East that effectively balanced Saudi Arabia and Iran off of each other, ushered in another geopolitical change that reverberated throughout the region. This was the Gulf War. In response to the invasion, U.S. President George H.W. Bush put together one of the largest military coalitions in history, including some very unsettling partnerships. President Rafsanjani of Iran was a pragmatist, eager to rebuild the country's economy after the war with Iraq. So, when Saddam Hussein invaded and annexed Kuwait in 1990, Iraq's troops were on Saudi Arabia's border and applying pressure to Iran's frontier. The Iranians and the Saudis were suddenly united in fear of the same madman. President Bush has just said the air war against Iraq will continue for a while. The Iraqis say that more than 6,000 civilians have been killed in the Gulf War. But the Allies again insist their bombing has avoided civilian targets. And here... In the meantime, Hafez al-Assad, the father of the infamous Bashar al-Assad, also agreed with the United States to have Syria participate in the war against Saddam Hussein. In exchange, the United States turned a blind eye when Syrian troops, with Iranian backing, invaded the Christian areas that had remained outside their control in Lebanon. This had a knock-on effect. Christians had slaughtered one another. Israel still occupied large parts of southern Lebanon. Hezbollah's rise had continued, and this ruthless campaign to eliminate intellectual opponents within the community had reached Beirut, claiming the lives of well-known writers and journalists, as the power of ideas was simply too much for Hezbollah to bear. In July 1990, just months before the official end of Lebanon's civil war, thousands demonstrated in Tyre. The Lebanese Shiite population called for the end of the Iranian invasion and the departure of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, or the IRGC, who had come after the 1982 Israeli invasion and still maintained a presence in the country. Eventually, the IRGC left, not because they were forced to, but because Hezbollah had already firmly established control. They no longer needed direct Iranian support. Meanwhile, in the Persian Gulf, half a million American troops had descended on Saudi Arabia in January 1991 to protect the kingdom and liberate Kuwait. Operation Desert Storm was swift and effective. In just five weeks, Saddam Hussein's army was completely routed. Things did not get better after the war for Hussein's Iraq. Under embargo throughout the 1990s, as a result of the Gulf War, Iraq had been shut off from the world. Food shortages, decaying infrastructure, growing infant mortality, thousands leaving for exile. The country had become hollowed out. Despair drives people to faith, and in Iraq, people were flocking to the mosques. For Saddam, his rule had not been specifically sectarian before. Shias had only been a target when they overtly opposed him. Now, he went after the Shiite population with determination. Shiite shrines were shelled. Thousands disappeared. Two million people were on the move in the South and the Kurdish North. Iraq's plight came to the benefit of both Saudi Arabia and Iran. The U.S. coalition may have won on the battlefield, but the Saudis and Iranians emerged as the true victors. Iraq had simmered with rage and violence after the Gulf War. Years of savagery ensued as people redefined their identities around sect, and the Sunni-Shia hatred began to take hold beyond Iraq's borders. Iran was taking revenge for the suffering and humiliation it had endured during the war with Saddam in the 1980s. This, in turn, would lead to counter-revenge by the Sunnis, led by Saudi Arabia. The Sunni-Shia rivalry had become fully weaponized. In the meantime, Saudi and Iranian-backed religious militias thrived in Iraq, Lebanon, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Syria. In the first few years following the Gulf War, Saudis made up almost half the foreign fighters in newly emerging groups, and Saudi jihadists carried out more suicide bombings than any other nationality. The United States became concerned that the Saudis were failing to stem the flow of fighters coming from the kingdom and of financing militant Sunni groups. In Afghanistan, much like Lebanon after its civil war, a sudden power vacuum emerged as the United States and Saudi Arabia failed to contain the consequences of their proxy war against the USSR in the 1980s. From the mountains, 
a Sunni mullah and former Muhaddin leader named Mohammed Omar, organized a militia of Muhaddin to take advantage of the chaos. They called themselves the Students and undertook a mission to reform Afghanistan into an Islamic theocracy. Today, we know them as the Taliban. Sweeping through the leaderless countryside, the Taliban stood almost unopposed and took Kabul in 1996. The Saudis flatly denied that their citizens were heading to newly formed vacuums in Afghanistan and the deserts of Iraq. A harbinger of future events would unfold in New York City. On February 26, 1993, two individuals bombed a parking garage below the North Tower of the original World Trade Center, killing six people, one carrying an unborn child. Unofficially, the Saudis were not displeased, and as always, they had plausible deniability. The state was not organizing anything. The main financier, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, was a Pakistani national after all. But individual Saudis were donating money to the cause, just as they had during the Afghan war against the Soviets, and fiery preachers in the kingdom were not silent, even while they exhorted their congregations to fight infidels. Throughout the 1990s, there were some 300 private Saudi charities sending over 6 billion US dollars a year to Islamic causes around the world. This flow of money, material, and resources would line the pockets of groups from al-Nusra to al-Qaeda. For a while, the kingdom looked away. It was rather convenient that the young, hot-headed threats to the monarchy were going to die in terror cells stuck in the unforgiving desert. The culmination of this ignorance and lack of responsibility manifested one sunny Tuesday morning in September with a catastrophic event that would leave a permanent scar upon the United States and forever change the dynamics of the Middle East. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Brian Gumble. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know if it was a commercial aircraft. During that late afternoon Riyadh time, a plane crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City. The second plane crashed into the South Tower three minutes after 5 p.m. Saudi time. As the news emerged about a plane crashing into the Pentagon and then another into a field in Pennsylvania, there was no doubt that America was under attack. Within a day, fingers were pointing at Al-Qaeda. Confirming those suspicions, Al-Qaeda quickly took responsibility. Two days later, Secretary of State Colin Powell identified bin Laden as a prime suspect. Within a week, it became clear that 15 of the 19 hijackers on that day were Saudi nationals. All of them had merely learned to walk during the events of 1979, and in many ways they embodied the generation defined by the legacy of that year. The kingdom had an erratic reaction. Silently, Many Saudis had come to understand that the repressive culture and closed society they lived in produced men like the hijackers. They knew they had collectively allowed intolerance to grow and flourish around them, and they had done nothing to stop it, not as a society and not as a government. But there was also denial, including at the highest level. Many high-ranking Saudi royals immediately asserted that it had to be a Western or Zionist plot to frame Saudi Arabia. Even a year after the attack, the interior minister of the time, Prince Nayef bin Abdelaziz, was still stating that it was impossible that 15 Saudis could have participated in such an attack, and he blamed a Zionist conspiracy. After the Taliban failed to turn over Osama bin Laden in the wake of the attacks on September 11, 2001, the U.S. revisited the region, but this time to Afghanistan. After 10 years of fighting, bin Laden was found and killed in 2011, but in neighboring Pakistan. The wounds of Afghanistan would take generations to heal. Two years later, in 2003, U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell was speaking at the U.N. to make the case for removing Saddam Hussein in the wake of Saddam's repression of the country that reverberated throughout the 1990s. The U.S. administration was using all the excuses and all the tools it could to justify such a move, despite supporting him 20 years prior. The Saudis had warned the Americans not to invade Iraq telling them it served no one's interest and would cause a resurgence of fundamentalism that would reach the United States. The Saudis may have warned about the destruction of Iraq, but what they really worried about was a Shia-ruled Iraq, where Iran called the shots right on Saudi Arabia's frontier. But the U.S. didn't listen. In mid-March 2003, just days after the start of the U.S. shock and awe bombing campaign that preceded the ground invasion, 
Saddam's statues were being toppled and the dictator was on the run. The Iranians were jubilant, as a U.S. invasion allowed for their return of Shiite-majority rule. Immediately, Saudi interests prepared a Sunni insurgency as a deadly antidote to Iran's expected opportunism. In the chaos following the fall of the regime in 2003, hardened Salafists found common ground with disgruntled soldiers and officers who were all suddenly out of a job post-Saddam. They were joined by the Arab fighters traveling by bus from Saudi Arabia to Iraq. So America will change our strategy to help the Iraqis carry out their campaign to put down sectarian violence and bring security to the people of Baghdad. Immediately, a Sunni insurgency against U.S. troops was underway. It consumed policymaking in Washington for years and destroyed Iraq's chances to recover from dictatorship in the short term. More than half a million Iraqis died, and over 4,000 American soldiers were killed, with almost 40,000 wounded. There was the Saudi-perpetuated Sunni insurgency, and there was the Iranian-backed Mahdi army. Iraq immediately became a welcome release valve for the two warring powers, each discreetly backing insurgencies to maintain a balance of power in the greatly weakened and divided Iraq. There were splinter groups in competition, street battles and car bombs. Some groups simply wanted to resist the occupation, but others saw an opportunity to establish an Islamic state, a Sunni Islamic state, one that would undo the deep wound of seeing Shias and Iran become powerful in a post-Saddam Iraq. The headlines about the surge of Shia power dominated the news. The ranks of the Sunni insurgency swelled. Dozens of young Saudi men joined the fight, the latest generation in the caravan of martyrs. Enter ISIS, otherwise known as Daesh and the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, a group led by the enigmatic Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. They sought to create an Islamic caliphate that unified all Islamic lands, where a puritanical strain of Islamic thought supported a uniquely restrictive interpretation of Islamic law that resembled both Wahhabist Saudi Arabia and the Taliban. For the United States, it was an untenable, costly, and unproductive operation. After Barack Obama had inherited the quagmire amidst the 2007 troop surge by his predecessor George W. Bush, Obama had announced in 2011 that the U.S. would be out of the country by 2014. He began a slow and steady withdrawal. As a consequence, a power vacuum emerged at the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. America's failure to remove Saddam in the 1991 Gulf War left unresolved issues which led to the 2003 Iraq War. This, in turn, created new problems which fostered the very instability in the country that was exploited by both Saudi Arabia and Iran and would lead to the emergence of ISIS. In 2014, ISIS occupied Mosul, Iraq's second largest city, and declared an Islamic state in June 2014. This event represents a culminating point in the series of interlinked events that began in 1979. Regional violence only continued to escalate further. In neighboring Yemen, the Houthi rebel group seized the capital, Sana'a, in September 2014 and brought down the internationally recognized government. Saudi Arabia accused the Iranians and Hezbollah of supporting and arming the Houthi rebel group, whose fighters belonged to a Shia subsect known as Zaidi. When Sana'a fell, Mohammed bin Salman, the future crown prince, was the aide to the defense minister, Salman bin Abdulaziz, his father and future king. The young prince was incensed by what he perceived as the weakness of King Abdullah in dealing with Iran for the previous decade. Some Iranian politicians declared smugly that Iran now controlled four Arab capitals, Sana'a, Baghdad, Damascus, and Beirut. Iran's sphere of influence had extended to Saudi Arabia's southern border, and the Houthi rebels subsequently began sailing rockets into the southern region of Saudi Arabia. Then, in January 2015, King Abdullah died and the older Salman became king. The Saudis wanted to beat their chests, restore Sunni pride, and bolster their leadership of the Muslim world. And so, for the first time in its recent history, the kingdom went to war. The Saudi military operation, launched in March 2015 with barely a warning to the Obama administration, was called Decisive Storm. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, two months into his job as defense minister, was certain that this would make him king of the Middle East chessboard. However, the military campaign would be anything but decisive. 
the Saudis couldn't do precision strikes with their fighter jets and were facing a guerrilla force entrenched in rugged, hilly terrain. The conflict would drag on for years. Tens of thousands of civilians would die by early 2020 in air raids by the Saudi-led coalition, ground battles, starvation, and disease. Ten million people were on the brink of famine because of the blockade the Saudis and the United Nations imposed, and the country was battling a dangerous outbreak of cholera. Almost 90,000 children died. It was the largest humanitarian crisis in the world, almost on par with the Syrian civil war. And so, the Saudi rulers now also had the death of a country on their conscience. But neither they nor the Iranians were willing to step back from their fight to the death. They refused to reflect on how their quest for supremacy had been unmaking the region over decades, culminating in the destruction of Syria and Yemen. Part 5. A New Future In 2019, Mohammed bin Salman had declared that the era of 1979 was over. While we have yet to see that actually occur, he was right in one sense. Religion was no longer what could motivate society and mobilize the masses. Across the Middle East, a vast majority of young people were declaring that religion played too big and too oppressive of a role in daily life. 70% of Saudi Arabia's population is under 30. Half of these young people are unemployed, and many of them are frustrated and angered by cultural oppression in a country where music, theater, dancing, museums, and cinemas are all officially banned. In Iran, as U.S. sanctions and the coronavirus pandemic have wreaked economic habit, suicides in Iran have increased by over 4%. About 1 million Iranians have lost their jobs, the rial has lost 50% of its value in 24 months, and the labor ministry admitted that over a third of its population now lives in extreme poverty in 2021. Now, young Saudis are asking their parents and grandparents, why didn't you do anything to stop this? In these countries, from which life had been blunted since those fateful events in 1979, there was resentment toward the two generations that allowed it to happen. Their descendants can no longer ignore the cultural rot that has developed for the past 40 years and are demanding an explanation. Why didn't their parents protest when the music was silenced? when the male guardianship system was tightened, and when the religious police started cracking their whips in public malls. How could they have let this happen without a single word? Across the Persian Gulf, Iranians were tired of the Ayatollah's attention to causes that were not their own. The 2015 nuclear deal with the Obama administration did not deliver tangible benefits for people. Their lives had not improved, and their pockets were still empty. But the regime was still spilling blood and spending billions of U.S. dollars in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Yemen. Young Iranians are grappling with the growing disbelief at the naivety of their parents and grandparents who had cheered on a revolution that replaced the tyranny of monarchy with the even worse tyranny of religious fundamentalism. One that was also politically but also socially and economically repressive, effectively freezing the country in time and disconnecting it from the world for over 40 years. In both December 2017 and December 2019, when demonstrations erupted across Iran, the months of unrest were the most serious threat to the Islamic Republic in years. Thousands of Iranians chanted slogans, Oil is too expensive, the poor are getting poorer, and Not Gaza, not Lebanon, my life is devoted to Iran. They called for the removal of the supreme leader. The response was swift and brutal, and the protests were quelled within months. Despite that, anti-government and anti-clerical campaigns in Iran only accelerated. Women became more daring in their protests against the mandatory veil. In 2019, one woman stood on a utility box, her veil hanging from a stick. She was arrested and later sentenced to a year in jail. Dozens more were arrested, but many women were not deterred. Hundreds of videos were posted every day of Iranian women walking without the veil showing their face to the cameras, confronting the religious police and even clerics. Their husbands, fathers, and sons also joined in, helping with filming or recording messages of support. This was not a minority movement. Former President Hassan Rouhani's own office had conducted a poll that found that over half of Iranians opposed the mandatory bail. The COVID-19 pandemic has put a hold on direct actions ever since. 
but many observers believe it will not be the last call for a second Iranian revolution. Meanwhile, activists are constantly bumping up against the boundaries of what was permissible in Saudi Arabia, whether it be criticizing the ultra-conservative Saudi clerical establishment, offering a mea culpa after 9-11, or calling for social reforms and openness in a stifling country. Saudi Arabia's feminist movement is perhaps the most well-organized opposition to the regime, successfully pushing for female suffrage and municipal elections in 2015, full driving rights in 2018, and the beginnings of a systematic dismantling of the male guardianship in 2021. Activists in Jeddah are fighting Saudi Arabia's harsh commitment to the death penalty, and the Saudi governance system has been undergoing a rapid and radical restructuring, despite it being a part of Mohammed bin Salman's gambit to empower his repressive monarchy at the expense of the religious establishment. Both Saudi Arabia and Iran ultimately have agency. They make decisions based on their interests and drive regional dynamics to suit their agenda. This endless self-reinforcing loop of enmity cannot easily be broken. And as a result, the competition between the two continues to be a race to the bottom today, as no one seems to be equipped to dissuade Iran or Saudi Arabia from acting upon their own worst instincts. Syria, Yemen, Lebanon, Libya, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iraq continue to gravely pay the price, as did those who raised their voices against their respective leaders in both Iran and Saudi Arabia. Nevertheless, beyond the headlines about war and death, the Middle East is a region alive with music, art, books, theater, social entrepreneurship, advocacy, libraries, cafes, bookshops, poetry, and so much more, as old and young people push to reclaim space for both cultural expression and freedom of their own expression. Their defiance is a source of hope, and their steadiness is contagious. Even when they're forced into exile, they don't give up. The world must continue to foster these powerful societal changes that unfold before us today. The international community, specifically, has a responsibility to present a credible political alternative to the current culture war fostered by the right-wing religious conservatism of both the Kingdom and the Islamic Republic. Of course, there are major geopolitical pieces of the puzzle, such as negotiations to end Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen or curbing Iran's influence in Syria. Many of those in the greater Middle East believe there is no way to diffuse the paranoid, vengeful insecurity of Saudi Arabia and curb the threat of Iran's expansionism without both altering the nature of Iran's regime and dismantling the grip monarchy has on the Arabian Peninsula. Nobel Peace Prize winner and Iranian human rights activist Shirin Ibadi believes the regime of the Islamic Republic itself can no longer be reformed and has suggested a UN-monitored referendum to change the constitution and remove the position of supreme leader. On the other hand, however, many Iranians and Shiite Muslims still see Saudi Arabia as the enemy, and will continue to do so as long as the kingdom refuses to end its own hateful anti-Shia rhetoric and teachings. Outside its borders, Saudi influence continues in the form of lobbying Western governments and spending money on mosques and teachings that hone close to the kingdom's fundamentalist understanding of Islam. To many observers, changes require the kingdom of Saudi Arabia reintroducing the diversity of Islamic teaching in Mecca to reverberate a more honest tone out of the heart of Islam's spiritual center. None of this is on the horizon under the current leadership, but it's not impossible. Since that fateful February of 1979, when Ruhollah Khomeini seized upon the Iranian revolution to supplant fundamentalist clerical rule, the order of things from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean Sea have never been the same. After four decades of rivalry between two foes in constant competition for cultural influence, both countries continue to abuse religion, promote right-wing radical paramilitaries and terror cells, and weaponize sectarian identities. The elusive peace in the Middle East cannot be achieved without recognizing the legacy of 1979 and the subsequent Saudi-Iranian struggle for cultural dominance. As the journalist Kim Gatha said, for many in the Islamic world, the past is no longer history. Rather, the past is alive in the boiling rancor of the present, and there appears to be little chance for forgiveness. This episode is part of our new narrative series, Up to Speed, 
where we tell the big stories of some of the most interesting developments in international affairs. If you enjoyed this narrative style, please let us know. Shoot us an email at hopkinspofa at gmail.com or send us a message on our Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at hopkinspofa. Research and script writing for this episode was produced by Cameron Brown and Hardy Williams. The editing was done by Samuel Coe, and this episode was hosted by Cameron Brown and Leo Kamer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>